Well, this morning we're continuing in our series called Change of Heart, uh, journeying through the book of Romans. And uh, we're going to be journeying through the book of Romans uh, on and off here for the next year or so. And uh, uh, since we've uh, gotten off schedule here a little bit with missing a Sunday, Dick came to me uh, last week and he said, hey, I'd really like for you to cover chapter two in two weeks instead of three. And so I said, okay, well, you know, before we start our Christmas series, uh, uh, we, can, we can give that a shot. We can give it a try. And so in the next two weeks, we're going to kind of walk through chapter two. And there's so much truth involved in chapter two that uh, we, can't, we can't spend all the time that really we, we really would need to unpack every little idea. But in the next two weeks, we're going to try to overview the, the whole chapter 2 as, as we go through uh, the book of Romans. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to chapter 2. Uh, we'll spend the majority of our time there in the text this morning. And as you're turning, let's, uh, let's just ask God to, uh, to speak to us this morning. Father, thank you that your love never fails. It never gives up on us. And Lord, we know that because in spite of our sin and rebellion, you sent Jesus the Savior to die on the cross, paying the price for our sin. And he rose again and conquered death. And, and because of that great act, we have the opportunity to, to place our faith and trust in him and have a relationship with you. Thank you for that love. And Lord, we're also thankful for the word that you've given us to to not only show us our sin, but show us your love and show us how you desire us to live. And it's our prayer this morning that uh, your word might speak to our hearts, that uh, your word might challenge us fresh and anew this morning to be dedicated to living lives that bring you honor and glory. Lord, for the next few moments, help us put aside the distractions and just focus on you and your word, and we'll give you the honor and glory for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, a few weeks ago uh, at Ignite, we finished up a series called Comparison Trap, and we were uh, teaching students uh, the dangers of comparison and how we all have this tendency to, to compare ourselves with others. And Pastor Dick wrapped up uh, the end of Romans chapter 1 um, last week. And I don't know about you, but as you read through those last 16 verses of Romans chapter 1 uh, and read just about how, how sinful uh, the, the Gentiles were and how, how they were just pagan and proudly practicing immorality, I think the natural thought pattern in our minds is, well, I gl I'm so glad I'm not as bad as they were, Right? Our minds naturally go to comparison. Well, yeah, that sounds really bad, but thank God that I'm not like them. Thank God I'm not like them. We, we, we compare ourselves, and that's just kind of natural. And, and the reality is there's no win in comparison. There's no win in comparison. And we need, we need to take our cue from the one, from the one who made you. And, and see, the problem with comparison and what we do often as, as humans is we try to justify our behavior and so we compare ourselves to other people. And we say, well, at least I'm not like them. And I don't know about you, but when I do that, I often, I mean, I, not often, I always pick people that I think are worse off than I am, right? At least I'm not as bad as them, because then I can justify my behavior. I can feel good about who I am and, 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 and maybe the quote-unquote little sins that I try to get away with. 
because I'm not, I'm not guilty of the big sins like other people. And I think that as, as we go from the end of Romans chapter 1 to, to Romans chapter 2, it can be very dangerous. We can get into this comparison trap. See, at the, at the end of Romans chapter 1, Paul, Paul is addressing the celebrating immoralists. So those who are just living for sin and living it up, and they don't care. They don't care. They are evil, and, and they are just having a good time, and it's all about them. And now, as we get into chapter 2, in the beginning of chapter 2, he, he, he goes from addressing those celebrating immoralists to the critical moralists, to those who maybe are comparing themselves to those other heathen Gentiles and say, well, at least I'm not like them. I have some morality. I have some standards. I'm better off than they are. And the interesting thing is that not all Gentiles were these self-pleasing, immoral people. F.F. Bruce uh, talks about Seneca, one of the contemporaries of Paul that we've talked about before. And, and he said about Seneca, not only did he exalt great moral virtues, he exposed hypocrisy, he preached equality of all human beings, he acknowledged the pervasive character of evil, he praised and instructed daily self-examination, he ridicule, ridiculed vulgar idolatry, and he assumed the role of a moral guide. And so here, as we start chapter 2, Paul's main emphasis, he's addressing these, these critical moralists. And the interesting thing, these people might think that they are good people, but they're not necessarily following Jesus. They're not necessarily following Jesus. They're, they're just Gentiles that, that maybe have some morality that kind of frames the decisions that they make, that they're not given to all the immorality that we read about in the end of chapter 1. And both these celebrating immoralists and critical moralists, they have some similarities and they have some differences. The similarities, they both have a certain knowledge of God. They both have some knowledge of God. You know, in the end of, of Romans 1, we, we read that, hey, you know, the, these Gentiles even had a natural revelation to kind of to tell them who God was, and yet they rejected that revelation, and they were without excuse. And we'll see that even the critical moralists, they have opportunity to, to, to know who God is. So they, they have, both have a knowledge of God, but they both contradict that knowledge of God by their behavior. They may know who God is. They may even know some of what he desires for their lives, but they contradict it by their behavior. That's the similarities. There is also some differences. The celebrating immoralists do things they know to be wrong, and they approve of other people who do them. So they do wrong, and they celebrate those who, who, who also do wrong. But the critical moralists, they do what they know to be wrong, but they condemn others. Who do wrong. So it's all right for them to practice wrong, but they are the morality police, and they condemn other people, which makes them very, very hypocritical. And so here in Romans 2, verses 1 to 16, Paul focuses on God's perfect judgment. No matter if you're a, a critical moralist or, or a celebrating immoral, immoralist, uh, God has perfect judgment over both of you. God will judge both of you. If you have your Bibles, look at the verse 1 in Romans chapter 2. It says, You therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. For whatever point you judge another, you're condemning yourself. Because you who pass judgment do the same things. 
Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you'll escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? And as we look at these first four verses, it's important to realize that God's judgment is inescapable. God's judgment is inescapable. Judgment is not just for other people, but it's also for ourselves. It's not just for other people, it's for ourselves. And Paul is communicating to those who judge, those who confront those uh, who are doing wrong and presume to pass moral judgments on other people here in verse 1. He's talking about, hey, you know, you are the judgment police. You are moral, morally kind of policing everyone around you. You're quick to pass judgment on other people. And in these verses, Paul uncovers a strange human defect that I think we all have. That strange human defect is this. We have a tendency to be highly critical of everyone else but ourselves, right? We have a tendency to be highly critical of everyone else but ourselves. It's a universal temptation to maximize the faults of other people and minimize our own faults, right? If we're really honest this morning, we all do this. We're good at maximizing everyone else's faults and minimizing our own, justifying them. It's not that big of a deal. It's not that bad. And this is definitely the double standard of hypocrisy, content to have a high moral standard for others and comfortable with a low moral standard for ourselves. And unfortunately, we see this practice all too common in the world today. I was reading a little bit about the Texas-Mexico border this week and the, uh, the challenging area that it is. And it's a challenging area for a number of reasons, but one of the reasons is because of the drug trafficking that happens at that border. Uh, the Discovery Channel actually made a, a TV show, a kind of reality show based on, on this everyday battle of, of trying to cut down drug trafficking called uh, Texas uh, Drug Wars. And as I was reading a little bit about this, I, I came across this, this, uh, this news report in 2013 in Mission, Texas. Four lawmen were arrested for escorting vehicles across the border carrying cocaine. And the amazing thing about um, this arrest and this, this story was that these just weren't your ordinary police officers. But these four officers were part of a special drug task force specifically put in place to fight drug trafficking. And so here is four guys, part of the drug task force, that's fighting and trying to secure that border and cut down drug trafficking. What are they doing? They're escorting drugs across the border. These men were participating in the exact activities they were enlisted to eliminate. They would arrest other people for for carrying on this kind of behavior, but when they did it, it must have been all right. It must have been all right. And unfortunately, oftentimes we have the same kind of attitude when it comes to sin. We condemn other people's, but we justify our own. It's very common to be tough in our judgment of others and very tolerant towards ourselves. 
We work up this, this state of, of self-righteous indignation over disgraceful behavior of other people. And yet when we indulge in the same behavior, it's not such a big deal. It's not so serious. We even gain a strange satisfaction for condemning in others the same fault that we justify in ourselves. Psychologically speaking, it's true that people tend to criticize in others those negative traits which they themselves are guilty of. Psychologists, thanks to Freud, call this projection. We criticize, the same, we criticize in others the same faults that we justify in ourselves. And Paul and Jesus warned about this kind of judgmental attitude, uh, this judgmental condemning. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7, uh, verse 1 said, Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, will be measured to you. And now Paul and, and, and Jesus, they weren't talking about judgment that is based on compassion with the, with the goal of correction here. You know, with a, full of a compassionate heart, when you see someone who's fallen into sin, that you go to them and try to restore them and try to, to help them see the error of their ways and help them repent of that. That's not what he's talking about here. But he's talking about the hypocritical, self-righteous condemnation of other people condemning their sin while they are comfortable con uh, continuing in the same sin pattern in their own lives. That's what, that's what they're talking about. And because of this critical tendency, Paul and Jesus remind us that if we expose ourselves, we expose ourselves to the judgment of God and we leave ourselves without excuse. If we can recognize this sin in other people and condemn it in their lives, we should be able to recognize that same sin in our own lives. There is no excuse. There's no excuse. Jesus and Paul are not saying here in, in Matthew 7 and, and Romans 2 that we should not care about other people or that we shouldn't bother confronting other people. As a matter of fact, in Matthew 7, uh, verse 3, Jesus goes on and says, Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, Let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye and then you'll see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. And Paul in Galatians talking about this confrontation, lovingly confronting uh, other people. In Galatians 6, 1 said, Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves, or you may also be tempted. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you'll fulfill the law of Christ. If anyone thinks they are something when they are not, they deceive themselves. Each one of you should test their own actions. Then they can take pride in themselves alone without comparing themselves to someone else. For each should carry their own load. And as I read those verses there in Matthew 7 and, 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 and Galatians 6, I think Jesus and Paul are, are, are challenging us to, before we try to go and, and, and confront someone living in sin, there needs to be some careful, uh, careful evaluation of our own lives. We need to look at ourselves in the mirror and we need to recognize, is there any sin in my life that I, need to be re that I need to repent of? Is there anything that I need to deal with in my own life? And I need to take care of that first. And when I have that under control, then I need to go to my fellow brother 
not for the purpose of condemnation, not for the purpose of ridicule, not for the purpose of, uh, of making them feel bad, but gently go to them to restore them, to point out their sin and help them repent of it. And not just to be so critical and condemn them and, and try to elevate my own position. In Romans 2.2, Paul goes on and, and, uh, and he says, Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such thing is based on truth. And, and the good news is that, uh, that not only do we all, um, all, all will face judgment, it's inescapable, but God's judgment is, is based on his per, the perfect word of God. It's not based on the fleeting feelings of human beings, but it's based on his word, that, that we are judged according to the same standard. And if we know God's word and, and can condemn someone else for not living up to it, but yet practice the same thing in our lives, we are guilty. We're without excuse. We're without excuse. We bring judgment on ourselves because we know what we should do, and we, yet we don't do it. In Romans 2, 4, Paul says, or do, or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? You know, we show contempt. We disgrace or dishonor God when we know what is right. We hold others to that standard. And we excuse the own violation in our own lives. We disgrace God when we do that. When we condemn other people's behavior, but we justify that behavior in our own lives. God's patience and his kindness is intended to give us the opportunity to repent. It's not an excuse to continue on in sin. So God's judgment is inescapable. It's not just for others, it's for ourselves. And the natural tendency that we have is to, is to judge other people to look at their lives and try to identify their sin and, and, and condemn them and not look at our own lives. See, is there any areas in our lives that we need to make right with God? Judge, God's judgment is inescapable. But you know what? His judgment is also impartial. His judgment is also impartial. And in verse 5 in Romans 2, it goes on, it says, but because of your stubbornness, and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath, when his righteous judgment will be revealed. God will repay each person according to what they have done. So as we look at these verses here, it first of all tells there's a future meeting. Everyone is judged by God. There's no escaping it. Everyone is judged by God. Paul consistently shared that God's gift of salvation is by grace alone through faith alone in Jesus Christ. He's shared that over and over and over again. Salvation is by grace alone through faith alone. But now Paul is talking about judgment, and he consistently taught that judgment of believers as well as unbelievers is based on works. It's based on works. Every person will one day stand before a righteous and perfect Christ to have his deeds judged by him. Don't often think about that on a daily basis, do we? as we make decisions, as we go about our lives, that every decision, every, every action that we do, we'll stand before God and give an account for that. Unbelievers will be judged according to their works at the great white throne judgment, and they'll experience God's wrath as they're sentenced to everlasting punishment in hell. They've refused to, to, to trust Christ as their Savior, to acknowledge their sin. They've rejected him for all of their lives, and now at the end of the age, when they stand before God, the just and righteous Christ... All the amount of good works they've done won't measure up. 
It won't earn a spot for them in heaven. They'll experience eternal punishment in hell. But as believers in Jesus Christ, our works will be judged at the judgment seat of Christ, where we'll be rewarded for how faithfully we served Christ. See, the good news is that, uh, um, that because of Christ's work on the cross, if we put our faith and trust in Jesus, he takes our sin and we get his righteousness. So when he looks at us, he doesn't see our sin, he sees his righteousness. And so we're saved from his wrath because of Christ's righteousness that happens at salvation. But we still have to give an account for our actions. We have to still have to give an account for our behavior. And, and, and at the, um, the judgment seat of Christ, our actions will, will be for all to see and, and will be rewarded for how we've used our life. But we're all going to face judgment, and this truth has been mentioned throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. In Jeremiah 17, 9, it says, The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and examine the mind to reward each person according to their conduct, according to what their deeds deserve. And Jesus said in Matthew 16, 27, For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and he'll reward each person according to what they have done. And to presume God's patience and kindness as permission to sin and not a possibility for repentance is a clear sign of, stub of a stubborn, unrepentant heart. To think that, hey, you know what, God is a loving God, and you know what, in the end, he's just going to pardon everybody. It's not the way it's going to happen. We'll have to give an account. He is a just God. He is a just God. Romans 2, 6 goes on. It says, God will repay each person according to what they've done. To those who, persistent, who, who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immor immortality, he will give eternal life. But to those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. But glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. And so here it's talking about a faithful measuring. God's judgment is based on our actions. God's judgment is based on our actions. To be clear, again, the Bible teaches that judgment is by works, but a life that is saved by faith will give evidence of that salvation by doing godly or good works. And the standard of measurement will be the same for all. God will repay each according to what they have done. John MacArthur said this, the presence of genuinely good deeds in a person's life reveals that he has been truly saved. And in God's infallible eyes, those deeds are perfectly reliable indicator of saving faith. In the same way, the absence of genuinely good deeds reveals the absence of salvation. In both cases, deeds become a trustworthy basis for God's judgment. When God sees works that manifest righteousness, he knows they come from a regenerated heart. And when he sees works that manifest unrighteousness, he knows they come from an unregenerated heart. And here in Romans 2, 7 to 10, Paul is, is drawing a clear line between two ty types of people, the saved and the unsaved. And he says the saved, will the, the saved will selflessly serve their Savior. They'll seek to honor and glorify Him in their present lives and will experience eternal life in heaven with Him. That'll be their reward. But they says the unsaved will selfishly serve themselves, rejecting truth, and practicing evil with their lives. 
in the present. And their reward will be experience eternal life, eternal punishment in hell, experiencing God's wrath. So Paul is kind of contrasting two different people here. The reward of the righteous is eternal life, and the penalty for the unrighteous is eternal wrath. In verse 11, it says, For God does not show favoritism. And we see a fair Messiah. Jesus is just and doesn't show favoritism. I have a question to ask you this morning. Who here grew up in a family with at least a brother or sister? Who here uh, has a family that with, mo- with more than one child? Raise your hand. So that's pretty much, pretty much almost all of us here. And if you've grown up in those families or have a family like that, you're probably familiar with some of these phrases like, that's not fair, or why can she do that? She's the favorite child. Uh, I have a twin sister, and, uh, and I heard this quite a bit growing up. Well, you know, to, uh, she would get in trouble a lot uh, in high school, and, uh, and so her response to that trouble was, well, Jonathan never gets in trouble. He's the favorite child. He's the perfect child. And the reality is, when I broke the rules, there was consequences. I was just smart enough not to break the rules as much as she was. And, uh, but I heard that all the time growing up, you know, that whenever she was in trouble, uh, getting, getting the just reward for what she's done, her, her natural response was, well, Jonathan never gets in trouble. He's the favorite child. I mean, if I heard that one time, I heard it thousands of times. And, and so, you know, you may have heard that growing up. Or um, if you have uh, brothers and sisters at, at our house, you know, the oldest child remembers the rules and regulations that they've had to uh, fulfill. And now as they see the younger children come along, if they don't have the same rules and regulations, uh, it's not fair. Do you ever hear that? It's not fair. When I was growing up, I couldn't have this till I was 10. Or when I was growing up, I had to do this, and now he doesn't have to do this. And so I hear, we hear this a little bit at our house. And oftentimes, Haley says, well, hey, you know, that's not fair. Zachary doesn't have to do this, or Zachary doesn't have to do that. And my natural response to that is, well, Zachary was always our favorite child. And, and of course, that, that, helps, that, helps the, that helps the argument greatly. That just kind of puts everything into perspective. But, but the reality is, when it comes to Jesus, there's no favorite child. He is fair. There's no favoritism with Jesus. He he is ultimately fair. He doesn't show favoritism. That's what Paul is trying to communicate. And and, and we know he he doesn't show favoritism because, number one, judgment is awaiting everyone. He just got through in in this first part of chapter 2. He says over and over again, we all will face judgment. We're all accountable for our actions. No one will escape that. And so we know Jesus is fair and he is just because all will face judgment. But you know what? He's fair and, 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 and doesn't have a favor because all, has, all of us have an opportunity for salvation. Not only do we all face judgment, but we have an all, all have an opportunity for salvation. And salvation is imperative because judgment is imminent. It's necessary because judgment is coming. And through faith in Jesus, he pays the price and penalty for our sins, and he places his righteousness on us. And the only way that sinful humanity can meet the righteous requirements of a holy God and escape his wrath that our sin deserves is through saving faith. 
And so while we all have to face judgment, we all have opportunity for salvation. God is fair. He doesn't have favorites. He doesn't have favorites. So God's judgment is impartial. It's awaiting everyone, but salvation is available to everyone. And finally, God's judgment is inclusive. In verse 12, it goes on and says, All who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law, and all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For it's not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but those who obey the law will be declared righteous. Indeed, when the Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they're a law to themselves, even though they don't have the law. They show that the requirements of the law are written in their hearts, their conscience is also bearing witness, and their thoughts sometimes accuse them and other times even defend them. This will take place on the day when God judges people's secrets through Jesus Christ, as my gospel declares. And here at the end, Paul is saying, yeah, both Jews and Gentiles are accountable to God. God's judgment is inclusive. He has spent a lot of time in the end of verse one, uh, end of chapter one in Romans, and the beginning of chapter two, talking about talking about the Gentile world, the pagan world, and, and and now he's also talking about the Jewish world too. And he's saying, "Hey, we're all accountable to God." And some people say, "Well, that doesn't seem right. That doesn't seem reasonable." I mean, the Jewish people had God's law given to them through Moses. They at least knew what God required of them. The Gentiles didn't have that. That's not fair. But we know from Romans chapter 1, verse 20, that, uh, that even the Gentiles got to experience uh, God's truth for, from general revelation. And here in, in chapter 2, in verse 15, it talks that not only do they have general revelation, but God has, has written his word in their hearts. They have, they have a conscience. They have this idea or ability of knowing what's right and what's wrong, and it comes from God. And the comprehensive manner of God's judgment does take into account the amount of spiritual truth that an individual has access to. God's judgment does take into account the amount of spiritual truth that an individual has access to. So the Jews, under the law, having had the opportunity to know the law uh, given through them through Moses, are more, they, they have a great responsibility. They have had the truth given to them, and so the truth that they have, they need to apply. But the Gentiles aren't without excuse. They've had God's natural revelation all around them, and they have uh, God's word written on their hearts. They have, they have a conscience within them. They know what's right and wrong. And while they may not have a limitless knowledge of God that, uh, in the form of, of the Old Testament law, they know, they know about God. They, they have an understanding of God, and they'll be judged according to that. They're accountable to that knowledge. And so the bottom line is the more a person hears God's truth, the more they're responsible for believing it and obeying it. The greater the hearing, the greater the judgment. So as we think about us this morning, who have opportunity to come Sunday after Sunday and hear God's truth, who have opportunity to have multiple copies of God's Word, even with us at all times on our phones, We have opportunity like no one else to know God's truth, and so we are without excuse. With that information, with that understanding comes a great responsibility. God's judgment's inescapable, it's impartial, it's inclusive. 
We don't like to think about God's judgment a lot, do we? I mean, think about it. As you go throughout a normal week, do you really think a lot about God's judgment? I know I don't. We're kind of on autopilot, kind of doing our own thing. But you know what? The gospel is crucial because judgment is coming. That's why the gospel is so important, because judgment is coming. All will have to give an account for their actions. And we know in and of ourselves, in our sinful self, we cannot, we cannot live up to God's righteous, his holy, perfect standard. And so we're lost, aside from putting our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. We're lost. It's because of that judgment, the, the gospel is so necessary. Paul makes it clear that everyone will face judgment, both Jew and Gentile, both the celebrating moralists and the critical moralists. And no matter how righteous we think we are, we'll, we'll not measure up to God's standard of righteousness. We'll be found lacking and deserving eternal punishment in hell. And the inability of, a man, of man to perfectly keep God's law displays our sin and our necessity for a Savior. It displays our sin and our necessity for a Savior. And when we repent of our sin and trust Christ as our Savior, we get His righteousness. And through salvation, we are rescued from our sin and the penalty of our sin, and we're declared righteous. And that is good news. That is good news. When we think about judgment and as believers, you know, we should be so thankful. That, that's the good news, that because of Christ, because of the gospel, we can put our faith in him and we can be rescued from eternal judgment and eternal punishment in hell. But that good news should impact the way we live our lives on a daily basis and the choices that I make and the people that I interact with in developing relationships with, with people who don't know Jesus. We should understand that for those that are in our worlds, in our lives, that we have relationships with who don't know Christ, they will face judgment. And without Christ, it's a bleak, bleak ending of the story. It is. If you're here today and you haven't trusted Christ as your Savior, please know that no amount of good works no amount of good works is, is going to appease God's perfect standard. No amount of good works is going to rescue you from, uh, from judgment and, and, and being declared not righteous and being separated from God for all eternity in hell. It's not going to happen. But the good news is today can be the day of your salvation because of what Christ did on the cross, because he paid the price for all of our sins. If you put your faith and trust in him, you can have a relationship with him and be rescued. Rescued from eternal death. But for those of us here this morning who are followers of Christ, the challenge for all of us is this. Let's not be hypocritical. Let's be holy. Let's not be hypocritical. Let's be holy. And the question for all of us to ask ourselves is, is, is this, am I more concerned for others' sin than my own sin? Am I more concerned for others' sin than my own sin? Because if that's the case, then I'm being hypocritical and I'm not being holy. If I just like being 
the moral police and pointing out everyone else's faults and, and giving myself a pass. Then I need to look at myself in the mirror and I need to get right with God. We need to reject the double standard of hypocrisy, content to have a high moral standard for others and comfortable with a low moral standard for ourselves. God's judgment is perfect and it's pending. It's coming. And because of God's judgments, the gospel is so important. Thank God that he has given us a way that we can have a relationship with him and spend eternity with him in heaven. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your love for us. Thank you for the the words this morning from Paul and just how good of a reminder it is for me to think about my own life and how I will give an account for what I've done. And even as a believer in Christ, even though that I've put my faith and trust in you and that I have your righteousness in my life, when you look at me, you see, you see your, your son's righteousness, Lord, that, that I'm responsible to live out the truth that you've given me and to, to obey you. And Lord, I pray that that you would help me not to be hypocritical, but be holy. Have a desire to live out your truth. And Lord, I pray that you would help me to understand also that uh, the people in my life, the people that I come in contact with that, that maybe not have had the opportunity to know you as Savior will, will face judgment one day. And because of that, they need someone to come alongside them and share the good news that no amount of good works they could do could ever earn their place in heaven. That in spite of our sin and rebellion, there is a Savior who paid the price for our sins, who died and rose again, and through faith in Him, we can be part of His family and rescued from eternal death and experience eternal life. And Lord, I pray that... Um, that you would help us to realize that judgment is real. And as we recognize that, that it would change the way that we live our lives. We'd seek to be holy and not hypocritical and seek to reach out with the good news of Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, our world doesn't need any more critical moralists. They don't need any, any more people who... who um, condemn other people's sin, but yet condone it in their own lives. They need people who are holy, not hypocritical. Uh, they need people, uh, believers, who are cared, care about living out their faith in a positive way that, uh, that look for opportunities to share the gospel with those who are lost. So this week as we go, let's every morning look in, a, look in the mirror and look at ourselves and, and see, uh, am I being hypocritical or am I pursuing holiness? Am I being the person that God wants me to be? And let's choose not to be that critical moralist, but let's choose to be those who are holily following our Savior, seeking to, to live for Him and looking for opportunities to share the good news with those who will face judgment, for those who don't have the opportunity, have never heard about the Savior and, and, and never responded to Him. Have a great week. We'll see you next weekend.